0: to you this morning. Hebrews chapter number 12, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews uh, for almost a year. We started last February, we've taken several breaks along the way, right Mike, needed, needed breaths, come up for air, uh, but uh, we are here at a place in chapter number 12 where he really begins to try to to stir up the Christians to, to live out what they, um, what they believe, what they profess, to follow after a holy uh, Christ and, and be confident. And um, He does that all through the letter, but it seems as he's coming to an end of his argument in Hebrews that, that he really is um, making a point to spur them on in faithfulness. Uh, We've dealt last week with the first three verses of chapter number 12, which is a a very good and timely passage for us beginning the new year, um, starting out the new year with that admonition to keep running your race. Uh, And then we get to verse number three and and really four and on through, and we we deal with what is uh, maybe seen as a, a, a neglected truth and Christianity, something we don't deal with much, something that is somewhat awkward because he takes two things and he puts them together. That is the reality of pain and suffering, persecution and godly discipline or divine discipline. He puts them in the same cynics, sentence and the same uh, subject and it makes it very awkward for us. But it is very needed to see what the writer is trying to encourage us with here so let me just read uh, the first 11 or not the first 11 verses let me just read read these few verses here for us to verse 11 and then we'll look at them together beginning in verse number 3 the writer says consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted and your struggle against sin you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured, or you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But later it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, reading and, and meditating on this passage throughout this week, my mind went to a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I think it was right when he said, we can ignore uh, pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. I had an abscess tooth a week and a half ago and it insisted to remind me that my main focus was where that pain was nothing else tended to matter at the moment that's all c.s lewis is saying it insists on being attended to god whispers to us in our pleasure speaks to us in our conscience but shouts in our pains it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world i don't know if you agree with Lewis or not, he is not infallible, but he seems to me to be correct. God speaking through the pain in our life and working through those situations and providences which we find ourselves. It does remind us that the Christian life is a blessed life. It is a life where you walk in the favor and in fellowship with Christ. It is a life which we are called into fellowship with one another It is what we read in Ephesians chapter number 1, receiving, being a recipient of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But it is naive to think, as some in our world would try to teach us and preach to us, and, and our devotional writers, they try to persuade us, it is not an easy life. Far from that. It is difficult. It is not carefree and trouble-free or problem-free existence that pushes us to the place of grappling with the idea and the topic of pain, sorrow, and persecution, trials, and all of its various shapes and sizes. And even looking out this morning at many of you and, and just knowing some of the circumstances in your life, I'm reminded that you're no stranger to this reality. Uh, you have been through the furnace of affliction and have in, been enrolled in the school of hardship, if I could say it that way, some of us in the school of hard knocks um, and we needed it some of that by our own <laughs> by our own hard headedness but nevertheless, uh, we, we live with that reality, and our theology. Our belief about God, about Christianity, about his favor, has to speak to that. Otherwise, it's no good at all. If we just look at God's favor through the lens of of everything going well, then we've missed the reality of what the Bible teaches. We've limited God to only certain sections in our life, and we're left wondering, where in the world is he, and why is he so angry with me at the rest of it? Amen? that leaves us in a place of problem. And not only does it leave us in a place of problem, it tends to be a place of awkwardness for us because it's hard to say what we believe out loud when life itself tends to to be an experience that we're not happy with or we find very, um, we find unwanted and unhelpful. Struggling with the providence of God, to put it another way. It's easy to say God is sovereign and we tell ourselves that in in great circumstances in society and he's in control. We don't really know what that means, but we know he's in control. But then we have to come to the question, is he in control of my life as well? Uh, Is he in control of the situations that is going on around me, the pain that I feel, the the difficulties that I experience? And all these, these produce more questions and more questions. And while it, it gives us that awkwardness in the discussion where we don't really know if we want to answer, though we have answers for it, what is even more perplexing is what the writer does in Hebrews chapter number 12. He joins together the awkwardness of, of the suffering of the believers here and, and the difficulty of the doctrine of God's discipline. I don't know as if we would bring those two things together. When you talk about someone's situation and, and what they're going through, would we automatically go, well, you know, we ought to be thankful for the discipline of God. And yet the writer here, without batting an eye, brings us face to face with the discipline of our Heavenly Father. I want to walk through this through five words, and I know that may sound scary to have five instead of three, because if we like three, it's smaller and you feel like you're going to get out of here at some time today. But I will try to help you endure and move along these quickly enough, Lord willing. First of all, I want us to look at this subject of God's discipline under the context of the reality. Or, or you could just write the word reality of what is going on. And we see the, the context of the passage, we, what we saw last week in verses 1 and 2. He's encouraged these, uh, these Christians to press on as it were, to run the race that is set before him. Lay aside all the things that tie you up and and that are holding you down, that are tripping you up. Lay aside those, put them to death, and run the race that God has set before you. Uh, That race, as we noted last week, for those of you who are with us, is a difficult race. It is difficult because it calls for endurance. It's not like running out and checking your mail. It is to continue on this life that God has given you, trusting him, following him, obeying him, and trust and, and, and living out the Christian faith. And so you see that kind of in the setting here, but it is not ignoring the difficulty of the persecution which they are facing. The church that he is writing has been through hardships, I know we talk about hardships and we have been through them, but they had faced and are facing persecution. In fact, when they had first come to faith, they, had, they experienced this back in chapter number 10. Look back with me for yourselves. He says, verse number 32 in his exhortation to them to continue on, to stay faithful. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And that sounds odd to us in our American culture. Coming to faith in Jesus and automatically at that point facing sufferings or or, uh, trouble or trials of this magnitude. Verse 33, he again explained some of this sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were treated that way. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here's a church that had faced already in their past a uh, a level of suffering, of persecution, having their property taken from them, having uh, been exposed publicly or, or shamed publicly with all of their, their fellow um, countrymen, uh, the Jews that surrounding them. They had come to understand a little bit of the suffering of what it means to be in Christ Jesus but the reality was not just their reality. It was something common among many of the churches in the early days. Thessalonica was born out of a time of affliction. Paul only able to preach there for three weeks until he had to run off because of the heated persecution that he experienced. They were birthed out of the fire, To put it another way. It wasn't just them, many others facing this same kind of treatment. In fact, one of the things we're reminded of is this suffering this persecution is not just common to the first century you might recall back in Hebrews chapter number 11 that while we admire people of faith and think about all the great feats that they had done like David killing a giant and Daniel in the lion's den and and God saving and delivering miraculously we sometimes We don't always connect the great sorrow and trials that they endured. The decades in which David ran for his life and hid in caves away from Saul who sought to kill him. Daniel being carried off as a young man into a foreign country and made a eunuch and put to serve in, in the capacity he was and many other people. In fact, Hebrews 11 goes on and says, Not only did they receive great things because of faith, because of their faith in God, uh, people receiving back their dead. In verse number 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and in prisons They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about skins of sheeps and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. It is a, a, a place, it is a message to a people who who is experiencing the reality of suffering in their life. Well, he does, he does two things uh, for them, and I think it does that for us as well as we look at it. Notice with me, he points, well, three things, really. He points them to the suffering of Christ himself, who was not exempt from suffering. Verse number three, they say, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary and faint-hearted. So first of all, on that reality, he says, think about Jesus and his own suffering. But secondly, and maybe it's the first place, at least what it says to me, the first place where the Bible says it's not as bad as it could be. Look at verse number four. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. He's not minimizing the fact that they are suffering or they've gone through persecution or any of those things, but he is saying that it isn't as bad as it could be. In fact, for the, for the Christians there, it is not as bad as it will be. I think of God's words to Jeremiah in chapter number 12, verse number 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in such a, a land, a safe land, you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? He's telling these believers in the reality that they are going through difficulties they're weary in the difficulties that they're going through, but there is heavier things that they could be facing and they may be facing. But the third thing he does in, in the process of bringing them to this reality is he points them to the disciplining hand of God. In, in, in one way, he there is that truth that they are facing this from wicked men just as Christ himself faced his own suffering from wicked sinners. Verse number three is what it says, right? He endured from sinners against himself. But on the second hand, he's he's telling you why that is true to look to the hand of God, your heavenly Father. That's what he means as he gives this exhortation in verse number five and, and following that this is the discipline of the Lord. Secondly, not only do we see the reality of this in their life, and I think we could see the reality in our own life i want to I want to just mention three reasons why we are disciplined. I think it may be helpful. Discipline is a i don 't know about you, but i don't like the word uh, It always has a negative <laughs> effect to it, right. Even if it's just discipline and working out or whatever it may be, it always carries the notion of pain. And rightfully so. It's translated as punishment. But it also carries training and education and all that would go about in raising a child. It's not always uh, hardships as far as physical pain or whatever the case may be. But all of the training which would bring a child into full maturity. I think the Bible is using it in that manner here, not minimizing the pain, including the pain which takes place. It is, in in one sense, in the negative, applying pressure or pain to correct a course of action. One of the things God does in our life in disciplining us is is he is seeking to eradicate or correct sin in our lives. There's... More examples of that in the Old Testament than, than I can possibly mention this morning. But God disciplines his children in their error. He disciplines their children in their error. David and Bathsheba is a great example of that. David's sinning against God, against Bathsheba, against Uriah. And in that sin, God disciplines him in the fact in many ways, but in one way, that the child's life was taken. The discipline of God against sin. Jonah, as I was thinking about this, is another great example. Here's a man, a prophet of God, who God told him to go to Nineveh. And he says, no, not going to do it. It goes the other way. You know the story, right? We, we, we sing little songs about it. And, and yet what you see is God's relentlessness in his care for his servants. His relentlessness causes his hand to move against Jonah, disciplining him and not only hurting him, but almost destroying all the lives of the people on the ship because of his disobedience. Jonah swallowed by a great fish, as you know the story. And so God works and moves in our lives to correct sin, to correct sin. The second way he disciplines us, the second reason he disciplines us, And a good verse for you, if you want to write a verse down, is Psalms 119, where the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He goes on and says, But it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, we should know that there is a distinction between God's judgment on sin in a believer's life and his corrective work. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, past, present, and future. When we are in him, we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are no longer under condemnation. We've been forgiven. We've been united to him. But he is zealous for our holiness, and he is zealous for our righteousness, and his hand against us, his discipline in our lives in those matters is to correct us, not to destroy us. And just like a kid who doesn't understand the difference between those, when he is disciplined from his parents, so sometimes we are confused about those things. I remember as a child, used to get that, maybe you did too, used to get that little talk, either before or after the, 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 what, what I would call a beating when I was a child. You know, son, and the bad thing is usually my uncles that were doing it, but anyway, you know, son, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it does you. I'm like, no, it's not. Let's trade places. (laughs) We think in moments of our life, God working and disciplining us is for our destruction. But he is not doing that to destroy us. He is doing that to heal us from whatever sin is in our life. As one preacher said it, sometimes his hand moves to break our affection for the sin which is causing destruction in our lives so that we may turn from it and to him from it to him but the second way he disciplines us is not only in the sense of correcting sin but also in the preventative care paul speaking to the corinthian church says god has given him a thorn in the flesh so that that he may not boast or be exalted above what he ought to It was a means of God putting pain in his life, whatever the situation was in his life, so that he might remain humble and usable before God. It was his loving care in Paul's life so that he may not sin and become big-headed. God works in our lives in that way to prevent us from greater sin, suffering and trouble and hardships at times come in our lives in that manner. The third way we look at God's disciplining hand is through, is through training and education to teach us, to teach us about himself, to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about others, to teach us about the faithfulness of his word. We, we find it trustworthy and proven in our lives as we go through difficulties and hardships. Job was a righteous and upright man going through all that he went through. And at the end of the day, uh, as you get to the end of the letter, when he has already spoke with God and God finally speaks to him about his trouble and not answering one of his questions, Job says, now I see you. Now I see you. It is God working through our lives, sometimes painfully, teach us about himself, to teach us about his son, about his grace, his favor, and his goodness for us. Thirdly, not only, thirdly, so we see the reality, we see the reasons, but I want you to see the reassurance. Notice with me in verse number five. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addressed to you, addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he... what's your translation say? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens every son whom he receives. The proverb writer tells us that we... Are not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. He's drawing that out of Proverbs 3. And the reason is because he is saying it is an affirmation of God's love for you. And when you think about the love of God, where does your mind go? Well, I honestly, i just be honest, I go to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says your father knows what you have need of before you even ask him. So pray like this. In in your father's care, he he has the hair of your head numbered, and and he he knows the sparrow that falls, and you're much more valuable than them, and and this is your good father in heaven. We picture love in those positive affirmations. Well, the writer is saying that the discipline of God in our life is a declaration; it is an affirmation of God's love. And in fact, without that affirmation then it is a testimony of something far worse. God's motivation to move and work in our lives, even in ways in which we don't understand and we don't appreciate at times, because we don't, right? Honest, if we're honest about that, some of you can say amen. And yet the writer is saying, don't you understand? You're not to think lightly of God's hand, His discipline. It is an affirmation of His love. It is an affirmation of his love. The Bible says in Proverbs thirteen twenty four, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he loves him who is diligent to discipline him. And we know that in the natural world, we, we think in our own world that, that having children is, is, is not for the weak at heart. That's for sure. I've got a couple. <laughs> it's exciting. It's fun. It's fun to do stuff with them. But the writer and, and the people would have understood this, and most of our human history understands this, that your expression of love isn't always giving everything that you could give to them. And we say that when we're foolish and we're growing up and we don't have kids yet, and we think, well, my parents hate me. They never give me anything. They, they've, I'm going to give my kids everything I never had. How many of you said that? Come on, you can be honest this morning. The profession's good for the soul. It's a good time to the way of repenting, right? So they'll get everything I didn't have and I'll do for them what my parents failed to do for me. But in that, most of us don't think about discipline. But the Proverbs is right when it says that that love comes and brings discipline. He loves us. His love motivates him to discipline us. It's not that he is disciplining us so that we will be in a shape to be loved. There's a difference in that, isn't it? If I put you through enough misery and pain and get all this worked out in your life, then I'm going to be, then I'll put your name on the back of my car and drive down saying how proud I am of you. God doesn't do that. It is his love which redeems us, saves us out of sin. That's a gospel message that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the declaration of his love. And it is his love which moves him to interact in our lives, bringing circumstances and providence and pains and joys all together to parent us. He is a good heavenly father. And his motivations in working in our life is love. But it's not only an affirmation of his love in our life, it's also an affirmation of our sonship. Notice what he says. There's no one exempt from this. There's no one who opts out. I'll take plan A and B and, and we'll just leave off plan C. You know, you go buy something, they give you three options. Well, for the Christian life, it's not like that. You don't get one, two, or three. We don't pick the kind of medium of the road thing and leave the premium alone because we don't like some of the things that come with it. No, it's it's all or nothing. He says here, you've forgotten the exhortation verse number 5 that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Who's disciplined? Everyone. All that are his. And I know I mentioned this, my uncles were very zealous and discipline. Uh, all of us, well there were several boys, we all uh, stayed at my grandmother's house for that summer, it was pretty fun. And as you can imagine, several boys, uh, we tended to deserve a lot of stuff we got coming to us. Sometimes they were so zealous we got double payment. I think that was just to make sure that to cover for the things we didn't get caught for, which was um, not saying it was right or wrong. You deal with that in your own. I'm still going through therapy, but <laughs> just kidding a little bit. So they were very zealous, might I say, to discipline all of us uh, rowdy nephews that come along the way. Oh, but man, you let one of the other people discipline their children. It was a different story. They didn't appreciate that. Because they had more of a zealousness, more of a care, more of a paternal love for their own children. I'm not saying they didn't care about us. They did. We didn't have dads at the time. And so we needed somebody to step in and do something. But, but it was different when it was their own kids. And that's what the Bible's saying here. That the affirmation of God's discipline in our life is an affirmation not only of his love towards us, but of our own belonging to him. He chastens every son. We could say chastens every son or daughter, but you you get the the language here. He chastens all that he receives We're his children, and he chastens us. And in fact, if we're left alone, if our life is just going smoothly along without God intervening, if we if we join ourselves to sin without conviction, without concern, without any correction from God, if He just leaves you alone in your own way and go your own way, it's a, it's a declaration that you're not His. That's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. Notice, He goes on and says... Uh, it is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons for what son is there, whom the Father does not discipline. If you're left without discipline in that which you participate, all that participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, He's not doing this kind of care for everyone. but those who are his, those who are his. He trains and he parents. The reassurance in the midst of that is that we are His and He is ours, and all that He does, He does through the lens of love in our life. Fourthly, let me just mention the reward that He brings us to the reassurance that we are His, reassurance of His love. But pain is not an end in itself, it's twisted. Uh, To think that God's just glad that his people suffer. It's twisted just to, to, to put God in this kind of ogre kind of mentality that we look at. Just sometimes we view our earthly fathers and mothers as kind of bent a little bit. They just enjoy doing what they do and we didn't like it. But the end result isn't so that we will be... Uh, that we will embrace or that we will always bear under pain. Pain is not the goal. Discipline in our life, hardships, difficulties, sufferings, all that God brings into our lives and through our lives is not the end in itself. It is, it is what that end is producing. It is what those encounters, those those providence in our life is is building in us. James tells us that that the trials of our faith produces steadfastness, which builds and produces maturity so that we'll be grown children and no longer children tossed to and fro. Paul tells us that suffering leads to endurance, and endurance leads to character, and character leads to hope, which doesn't put us to shame. So God is working in your life and he's working in my life. And what he says here in in verse number nine. He says, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father's spirits and live? He says, for they disciplined us for a short time. as It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our what? Can you say that this morning? Do you believe that? God works in your life for your good? Do you understand the way he works? Maybe not. Probably not most of the time but he is assuring us he is he is reminding us in the middle of it even when things are difficult and hard and and we can't make sense of it all there is a motivation for what he does in our life and that is our uh, that is his love for us there is an affirmation of our belonging to him and there is a comfort in the fact that this is for our good ultimate good ultimate good our parents, he says, disciplined us and we gave respect to them. We honored them. They did it just however they felt. As one preacher said, they did the best they could. So some of y'all who deal with that and, and struggle with that and and some of us are in the middle of trying to live that out, doing the best we could. What seems fit to us? And, and let me just say we all get it wrong. Can we say amen to that? Just making sure you're still awake. You... Did it too much at times, I'm sure. Wrong spirit, too angry, should have calmed down. Didn't have all the facts. And sometimes some of us have grew up in situations where it's been nothing but abusive, nothing intended for our good. You're only annoyance and an aggravation. It was all for their own looks and their own and their own perception of their it was just an aggravation. We we have experienced the 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 awfulness of this sometimes in life. And some of you have had a different experience, but that's a different story. it was he saying that even in the best intentions, our father are doing the best that they can do. And we respect them. In fact, what we find later on, our parents get wiser as we get older, right? They, They get not so wise when we're about midway through our teen years, and then they grow wiser later on. But why is he saying that? Well, he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He says, "If you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Even you who are sinful and have a sinful nature, even you who gets things wrong, you're not not always good. Can we be honest about that? Amen. I almost want not be like, you need to help me preach that part, right? If you can give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father? That's what he's saying here. If our parents did this, how much more does our heavenly father do what he, do, what he does for our what? For your good, Jim. For your good. Can you trust his infinite wisdom in your life? Can you trust that he sees the moment now, the past and the future and holds it all together in the moment that you can't understand what's going on around you? Can you rest in the care that he has for you, that he loves you and and stop this back and forth? Does he love me? Does he not love me like a a little teenage kid picking flowers, trying to figure out the person beside of you likes you or not? He says he does this. He works in our life. His discipline is meant for our good. He goes on and tells us in verse number 11. Though it is painful rather than pleasant. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If I could say it another way. Discipline is essential. It is necessary because we are sons. and Because he loves us. But it is also essential, it is also necessary for your sanctification. Because he is conforming us into the image of Christ, it is necessary. I, let me just give you, fifthly, the response we should have in this quickly. We've looked at the discipline of God, the reality of the, that we face. We've talked about some of the reasons why We are disciplined by God. We've seen the reassurance that it gives to us. Results that it brings in our life. And let me just give a few response for us. One, I would just say this. In the midst of discipline, in the midst of running our Christian life. he, He begins verse number three really with the application. Some of you are tired. Some of you are weak. Some of you are weary. Some of you feel like giving up. I don't know who you are. I I mean, maybe you're here this morning. You feel the same way that they felt here. It is difficult. It is hard. You're not sure it's all what it's cracked up to be. You you just don't know. It's just difficult, hard. In the process of that, he says, in the middle of that feeling, in the middle of that overwhelmingness, the answer isn't turning away from God. The answer is focusing on, on God it is it is considering Christ that's what verse number three begins with consider him Our response to the disciplining hand of God is to look to Christ to think through what he's done for us how he's purchased us all of God's favor rest in that gift of Jesus Christ did you know that That as he gave him for us to redeem us, even in the midst of all of our trouble, the Hebrew writers are saying he's still the answer. Come to him to find help in your time of need. Consider him. Think on him. Be encouraged by what he suffered for your sakes. So I would say our response is to consider Christ. Make him the subject before your eyes. In the middle of your hardships, when things are difficult, bring him up. Bring him before your mind's eyes. Think of what he's done for you. Think of what he's endured. Be encouraged. But secondly, not only are we to consider Christ, we are to not treat God's discipline lightly. It's the idea of disrespecting it. It says verse number 5, You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Despise and look down upon it. You're saying, I would never do that. I would say that too. I would never do that. But you know what happens sometimes? We do that. Because we don't have all the answers and God's not giving them all to us. Because we walk by faith. He's given us enough to trust Him. And, and, and I think, at least as, as I'm trying to put all this together in my mind to communicate it to you and communicate it to my own heart, it brings me, how do I know that I'm thinking little of God's work in my life? Well, I think it starts with murmuring and complaining. Murmuring and complaining about God, about His providence, about my lot in life, about all the things going on, just constantly with that... That 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 running over and over in my conversations and my thoughts when I'm thinking about God and who He is. I think it also manifests itself in anger. There's someone I know in my my life who struggles with this particular response. Every all the hardships culminate in in. Anger against God. You said, "How would, how could you ever?" It happens, doesn't it? It happens. We we cannot handle what we go through in life. We cannot understand what's going on, and and in the process of that, I, we begin we begin to to fester up anger, bitterness against God, against what He's doing in my life, and and that's seen oftentimes because we begin comparing ourselves to other people and be like, "They got a lot better off than I do. God loves him a lot more than He does me." Rather saying, No, this is God's love, His affection for you, His work in your own life. So we're not to treat it lightly. And thirdly, I would say this our response is that we continue on. Notice, women, in, in verse number 12 and 13, He said, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He's been using the metaphor of running, and you can imagine the pain that long-distance running brings about. I think it's somewhere in the language here and in his conversation, he's saying, Be encouraged, take strength, take hope. Stir up your affection. Stir up your courage. Continue on in in trusting Christ through the middle of your sorrows, through the middle of your circumstances, through the middle of his disciplining in your life. So he's telling the people, don't quit. Why would you quit? Continue on. Strengthen what needs to be strengthened. Move along in this pursuit of holiness and godliness. We'll look at a little more next week. So, beloved, this morning, I, I think this is a timely message for, for me personally, and maybe for some of you. As we contemplate how those realities together, God's disciplining in my life, and, and the sorrows sometimes, the hardships sometimes we face, how do they go together? Well, I don't have all the answers, but I do know this, that God moves in my life Motivated by his love for me and the same thing is true with you and the, what he does in our life through his infinite wisdom he does for your good and my good so that one day we will as we share in the sufferings we will also share in glory amen so be encouraged pray with me father we thank you thank you for your goodness to us thank you that you love us So much that you've not only given us a new life, new birth, a new heart, a new desire, but you love us so much that you will not leave us to ourselves. Reminded of the Old Testament where there's a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. Lord, you bring us all the way home, training us, educating us, disciplining us as we need Thank you for your love. I just pray for those here this morning that are going through difficulties and sorrows. I pray for those who are, are facing uh, overwhelming circumstances that you would give them the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Give them the peace in Christ and, and the assurance of your love even now as they walk through this. The psalmist said that there is comfort walking through the valley of the shadow of death and that is your presence. And so even in our sorrow, we're comforted by that great reality that you are with us. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that that are not yours. It's evident in their own lives. Lord, I pray that you would even now open their eyes, work in their hearts, that they would turn from their own ways and turn to Christ who gave himself for them. In Jesus' name, amen.